right, please turn to Acts chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, there will be Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. And you can also follow along. It will be projected up behind us. What a joy to be back in the pulpit and to be back in the book of Acts and to be looking at Paul and Barnabas' first missionary sermon on their first missionary journey. And if that wasn't enough to make this great passage something I'm excited to teach through, the content of Paul's sermon makes for one of my absolute favorite topics in all of Christianity, in all of the Bible, and that's finding freedom through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's actually a topic that I love so much that if anybody's seen the movie or if you've known me for longer than 10 minutes, you've probably heard me talk about the movie. Some friends of mine bought me this fancy broadsword, and I brought this because baby dedications and broadswords mix so well. Um, but I just have been utterly captivated by the scene in the movie Braveheart where William Wallace gives the declaration of freedom at the end of the movie. He says it much less calmly than I'm saying it. He, he yells it as this, this watchword, this declaration. And I love it because there are very few words that encapsulate the Christian life more than the term freedom. There are very few terms that speak of what Jesus Christ has done for us and purchased for us by his blood more than the term freedom. My absolute love for this topic of freedom is why I hang that broadsword over my desk and it actually fell a couple of weeks ago and it was very scary. Um, so now um, I got new fasteners on that so that I don't lead an early death because that would be a really silly way to die. Um, and I'm sure that that would make it to the newspaper or on the internet. So um, anywho, um, freedom is something that everybody wants, whether it's freedom from addiction, freedom from anxiety and depression, financial freedom and the freedom of not being encumbered by the heavy weight of debt hanging over your head, freedom to be unencumbered by unhealthy relationships, freedom to not live for the fear of man and be constantly obsessed with what people think about you or are saying about you. Basically, we want freedom from anything that would give us bondage. And this is universal. It's hardwired there by God. We're created to long for freedom, yet we're born in slavery to sin. Check that out. We are created to long for freedom, yet we are born enslaved to sin. And this creates an obvious tension. It's a tension that every person who's ever walked the earth has felt. I mean, you even see the tension in our very first parents, Adam and Eve. They felt that tension. And also, freedom is not just something that Christians desire. When I say that we were created to long for freedom, it's a universal maxim, folks. This is something that when I say everybody, I mean everybody, even those 
who are willfully chasing the things that yield to bondage and slavery. At times, they come to a sober moment and they know that this thing that's bringing them to bondage and slavery is leading them to bondage and slavery and they desire something more and they long for freedom in the deep recesses of their soul. So even though the desire for freedom is not distinctly Christian, I'm going to make the case from our passage this morning that the gospel is the only way to it. Other approaches may yield abstinence from something that we're enslaved to, but abstinence and freedom are not synonyms, and only the gospel can produce freedom. The abstinence approach to freedom says, if I just put these rules, or if I just put these restrictions, or I put these guidelines in place, I'm no longer going to be inclined to those things that I was predisposed to that cause bondage and produce slavery. The Bible calls that approach the law. And while it's beneficial to stop any destructive behavior that leads to bondage, simply stopping a behavior does not change the heart that desired the thing that led you, led you to slavery to begin with. The law does not change the human heart. Too often what passes for a Christian sermon in a Christian church from a Christian pulpit is just stop doing this thing that brings bondage and do better next time. Make better choices. Don't choose the thing that gives you slavery. And again, stopping destructive behavior that leads to bondage is a good thing, but we need something deeper than abstinence to bring our hearts into a place of freedom and actually change the disposition of our heart. And that's what Paul preaches on for his very first missionary sermon. Think about that. This is his first missionary journey. This is his first sermon out of the box on his first missionary journey. So what he's going to preach on is pretty important. The Holy Spirit led him to preach on something that is going to be vital for the gospel going forth and continuing to go forth for generations and generations. And what Paul does is hold up freedom and slavery next to each other and share that only the gospel can produce the freedom that our hearts truly love. So as our passage opens, Paul and Barnabas show up in a city called Perga and enter the synagogue and begin to teach. Look with me at verse 13. It says, Now Paul and his companions, companions set sail for Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left and returned to Jerusalem. But when they went to Perga, they came to Antioch at Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, and said, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. Let's pray. God, I pray that through the preaching of your word, that you would bring about freedom for your people. God, I pray that you would bring clarity to the preaching of it and that you would bring forth ears that would hear. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So just to prove my point that even what you consider good people need to hear that the law doesn't save and that only the gospel can produce freedom, keep in mind that 
this is a synagogue that Paul is teaching at. It's not like he's going into a prison or a rehab or a probation center or any of the things that we might think of when we think of bondage or slavery to sin. These people were devout Jewish people showing up to a synagogue for a time of worship and from hearing from God's word and from the reading of the law. Not exactly what I would think of when I think of a collective of tax collectors and sinners. And they're also inviting Paul to teach. And they want to hear from God's word. So this is a pretty religious crew that we're working with here in these verses. Verse 14 says that they sat down. Why why is that significant? It's significant because sitting down was the posture of a teacher or somebody in authority back in the first century. We see that in the description of Jesus as the one who is what at the right hand of the Father? Seated at the right hand of the Father. We see it in the way that Jesus describes the apostles as those who would be seated at his right hand and his left. In the old days, the teacher would actually sit and the congregation would stand, which is just fascinating because if you read on in the book of Acts, there was actually like this eight-hour-long sermon at this one point, so it seems pretty liberating to be able to sit down. You know what? Let's try it. I'm going to sit. All you got, not one person's going to go for it, huh? Um, You guys know me. That would be really, really awkward. I, I would hate sitting down while I was teaching, even in like small group Bible studies, I just need to fidget and walk around. But it would save a lot of money on chairs if you uh, had this policy, right? Um, I sit down, we need one chair, the rest of you are standing. But I bring this up, and more importantly, the Spirit brings this up to point out that there was a time where people were actually interested in what Paul had to say. But even that isn't enough to stop rebellion in the human heart. And according to the text, Paul reads to them from the law and from the prophets. And in verse 15, I love it. He's reading from the law of Moses, and the leaders of the synagogue ask Paul for a word of encouragement from the law, which is pretty interesting because the word that Paul shares is really not very encouraging as we go on in this text. They say, can you give us a word of encouragement? And he's not going to preach about how live every day like it's Friday and just be the better version of you. He's actually going to say some pretty hard truths. He basically gives them this message about freedom versus bondage, talking about their slavery to Egypt right out of the chute when he starts the sermon. But I have a quick question for you before I get into the content of Paul's sermon. Do you think that people would choose freedom over slavery if given the opportunity. Often in evangelism and discipleship, I start off with a question like that or something similar to it. And I would really encourage you, if you're discipling somebody, use some variation of this question. If you're trying to evangelize, use this question, do you think that people would choose freedom if given the opportunity? And often when I ask that question, you know what? Most people assume that given the choice, they would choose freedom 
over bondage and slavery. One of the biggest arguments against what's known as Reformed theology is, hey, why are you taking away the right for people to choose? How come you don't have enough theology, uh, room in your theology for people to choose? Well, as you observe Scripture, what makes you think that given the choice that people would choose freedom over slavery? I mean, read cover to cover. Read before there was even sin introduced in Genesis chapter 3. People without sin didn't choose freedom over slavery. And if you didn't just want to look at Scripture, let's say um, you are an empiricist and you want to look out at the world and you say, I want observable, repeatable data to be able to inform my opinion. As you look at the world, what makes you think that people would choose freedom over slavery? I mean, think about some of the addictions out here. Think about just the predisposition that people have. And you look at the statistics that majority of people look at internet pornography. We know that it doesn't lead to anywhere good. But you convince yourself, I'm going to be the exception that can look at this and not be enslaved. You know that using heroin is going to create a habit. And you're going to end up addicted, incarcerated, or dead. Yet people still do it, thinking that they're the person that's going to escape addiction. You know that debt is not going to lead you anywhere good. Yet the average American household spends 110% of their income each and every year because they think that they're going to skate by and be the exception. But maybe looking at scripture and looking at the world isn't enough. Look at history. What makes you think, in looking at all of history, that people would choose freedom over bondage and slavery? I mean, look at the Middle Ages, probably the most religious time in the world's history. The whole system was predicated on slavery and a religious system that preached the law and enslaved people to it as a way of making people be obedient. So as we look at this passage, Paul's very, very upfront about the fact that people do not choose freedom over slavery. Thank you so much. Um, His message is not politically correct here, folks. Given the choice, apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of freedom through Christ canceling out the stain of the curse, people are going to have a predisposed bent toward choosing slavery. And that's what Paul preaches about for his first sermon. So Paul starts off his sermon by talking about the bondage that the Israelites faced in Egypt. Look with me starting at verse 17. Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and they made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. With an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And then for about 40 years... He put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse... A man after my own heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought forth to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, 
he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, behold, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So Egypt, from cover to cover in the Bible, is a literal historical picture of the spiritual condition and the bondage that was facing the people. Paul talks about how God made them a great nation down in Egypt, but they ended up, even as a great nation, by God's assistance, in slavery and bondage to the Egyptian people. And from here on out, we see a case after case of people constantly choosing slavery when given the choice. So in verse 17, it says that God brought them out of slavery and bondage. But in verse 18, he makes the argument that they chose slavery again. And they're forced to deal with the consequences of their slavery by wandering 40 years in the wilderness. So in verses 19 and 20, we see that the people are facing a return to slavery and bondage to the Canaanites. But it says that God in his mercy defeated the Canaanite nations. And in doing so, he led the people out of bondage and slavery. And God brought them into this land of promise. The land that you read about in the law that they're asking to hear from in these very verses. But then in verse 20, it talks about the time of the judges. If you know anything about the judges, you know that the Israelites were in this constant cycle of deliverance into freedom, into choosing bondage into resulting in slavery, back into God raising up a deliverer, into deliverance, into freedom, into choosing bondage, into resulting slavery, and over and over and over the cycle continues. That's the message of the book of Judges. It's this constant cycle of choosing bondage resulting in slavery rather than choosing in freedom. And the book ends with, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes, with the obvious conclusion being what's right in our own eyes is to choose slavery and bondage over choosing freedom. And then verse 21, they decide that they do not like or agree with the way that God wants to lead them. They want to be like the nations around them. So they reject Samuel, the final judge, who was a godly leader because they want a king so that they could be like the nations around them. And there's more going on here than meets the eye, folks. This isn't just about wanting a king. The reason that God did not give them a lineage of kings like the other nations is because they already had a king. God was supposed to be their king. Yahweh was supposed to be a covenantal king to his people. So in demanding a king to be like the surrounding nations, they're actually rejecting and casting off the kingship of God. They thought that by doing things their way, they would have a greater path towards freedom. And just a bit of a tangent, but isn't that the way that people always think? when they reject God's ways in favor of their better way that they've concocted. They convince themselves that they're going to experience some sort of freedom as a result of the decision that they've made, but freedom doesn't come from rejecting God's word and rejecting God's ways and rejecting God's heart. Freedom certainly doesn't come from thinking that we know better than God does. And if you're walking that line right now, you need to know that you are consciously choosing slavery over freedom. And that's the way that it goes down here. They reject the kingship of God so that they could be more enlightened like the nations around them. So by verses 21 and 22, we see that their wisdom was a giant fail. 
And it did not lead to freedom, but once again drove them squarely into bondage. So in verse 22, God in his mercy disposes of the wicked king, even though they were the ones that chose him and replaces with a king after God's own heart. But even after God erases their mistake, and God not only supplies an eraser, but he supplies a righteous answer, they still rebelled, leading to bondage. By the very next generation, Solomon is setting up pagan temples in the very temple of God. And then Paul gives them one more example in verses 24 and 25. And what Paul does is he ups the ante here. Whereas David was a man after God's own heart, and that's pretty cool, John the Baptist according to Jesus, was the greatest mortal ever born of a woman. And he gave a prescription on how to deal with rebellion. He told the people to repent and seek after the one whose sandal he's not even fit to untie. But that still wasn't enough. Not only did they not choose freedom, they arrested the guy who came preaching freedom and murdered him so that they could continue to live in their rebellion. So what's Paul doing here with all these examples? It's really profound, especially when you consider that this was the first missionary sermon ever preached. You would assume that the first missionary sermon is going to hit on a pretty critical topic. And for the topic, Paul chooses to hit on this idea of freedom versus slavery. But not just that, but the implications it has on the human heart. And what Paul is doing is showing them, he's proving to them, is probably the better way to say, that it's not their circumstances that led them into bondage. Paul shows them that in every, any set of circumstances no matter how perfectly aligned for them, that people still chose bondage. When they were in times of prospering, they chose bondage over freedom. When they were in lean times, they chose slavery over freedom. Even when God did miraculous things, like parting the Red Sea in order to bring them out of slavery into freedom, and then sent them a king after his own heart, they went through that sea that was parted miraculously for their benefit, got to the other side and said, where's the slavery? We want more slavery. And then they just start railing against Moses and said, why did you free us? We want to go back to slavery. Can you lead us back to being slaves yet again? This is important to getting to the heart of the matter because often people try to blame slavery and bondage on their circumstances. Most folks, if possible, would choose to ignore the role that their heart has to do with the issue in favor of blaming the bondage on something that's circumstantial. I see it with every addict that I sit with, folks. I can reason with them until I'm blue in the face. I can give them the most logical argument possible. I can actually pull up photographs, actual pictures of the bridges that they have burned and the wreckage that they have caused through their addiction. But as long as they are insisting on blaming the circumstances rather than allowing the gospel to deal with the heart issue that led to the circumstances, they're still going to actively choose to walk away in bondage. This isn't theory. I see it day 
after day after day. So Paul traces this idea of bondage throughout the entire Bible to show them that no matter what the circumstances, people still choose slavery. They didn't slip into it. They didn't fall or whatever other cute words we like to use to be able to excuse sin. They chose the things that led to slavery. And what he's doing is proving that every single person ever born is in need of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? I have seen people break free from patterns of destructive behavior, but Jesus gives this amazing parable about sweeping out the house, but not filling the house with anything healthier than what you swept out of it. And he says that this is actually very dangerous, folks. He says that actually what results is that something much more dangerous than what you swept out to begin with ends up coming in and filling the house, leading to slavery and bondage that's even deeper than the first. And I see that so often in people that just pull themselves up by the bootstraps, break free from addictive behaviors, but don't rely on the gospel of Jesus Christ. All they do is become addicted to moralism and self-righteousness instead of the substance that they used to fuel their body with. The path to freedom runs directly through the old rugged cross. You can't get there any other way. And Paul makes that point in verse 26 directly. Look with me at verse 26. He says, brothers, Sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God to us has been sent the message of salvation. So Paul refers to this message of salvation being the key to finding the freedom that they're looking for. And I love how Paul delivers this message. Have you ever sat with somebody who had news to deliver to you? And it's hard news. So they say, hey, I need to sit with you and I've got some good news and some bad news. Which would you like first? I'm sure you've been in that situation. Every one of us has. You've probably been in it this week. So Paul starts with the bad news first. And the bad news is that every single one of you is a rebel. All of us have chosen to rebel against the holy and righteous God. And that rebellion led to bondage and slavery for everybody. It's systemic across the human race. It's not just to one pocket of people. It's everybody. Nobody is immune from the effects of this. But just as bad as the bad news is, the good news is so much greater. Paul was not just sent as a preacher Paul was sent as a messenger, according to verse 26. And the message that he has been given, according to Luke's words in this verse, is the message of salvation. So what's the message of salvation that Luke is referring to? It's it's the gospel. The gospel is the message of salvation. The gospel is the message that God has provided amnesty to a bunch of rebels, but not just amnesty. The gospel is the message that God is saving slaves out of their rebellion and replacing their rebellion with freedom. The gospel is the good news that we who walked in bondage and slavery do not have to walk in bondage or slavery any longer. We get to walk in freedom because of Jesus Christ, who had only known freedom, and he has taken our sentence of slavery so that we who were born into slavery and only knew slavery might be able to come to know freedom through what he's purchased. Do you hear that? You don't have to walk in slavery. 
You have to hear that. I know that there's folks that are sitting out there right now that are actively choosing to walk in slavery. I know it because I've been that person that sat in a church and thought, I'm going to clean myself up so that nobody knows the extent of the slavery and the bondage that I'm walking in so that I look good on Sunday. You're doing no favors to yourself. You're doing no favors to God. You're doing no favors to anybody when you come and put on a facade to be able to look like you're walking in freedom when you know that your heart is melting inside because of the slavery that you're living in. Please hear me because I know that people will still choose to walk in bondage. It's just the human condition. The good news is you don't have to be enslaved. Nobody has to leave here walking in bondage through Christ who died that you might taste his freedom. So Paul shows them how much greater the good news is than the bad news when he makes the point that God actually used their rebellion to bring about the freedom that they're looking for. Look with me starting in verse 27. It says, For those who lived in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, meaning Christ, or understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Listen to that sentence again. They heard the prophets. They heard the law. They didn't understand it, so they fulfilled the law by condemning the lawgiver. What a profound sentence that is. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem and were now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way, I will give you holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and he was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So God laid out this message of salvation all the way back starting in the book of Genesis but when the Messiah, the agent of reconciliation of salvation came on the scene, the people rejected him because they esteemed the desire to walk in their own slavery higher than desire of freedom just like they did to Moses according to Paul's example, just like they did to the judges, just like they did to Samuel, just like they did to John the Baptist. And that was Paul's point in bringing up all these examples. People left to their own devices will choose rebellion and bondage, culminating in the rejection of and the murder of God's own son. But God refused to allow the bad news to be greater than the good news. Do you hear that? God refused to allow the bad news to be greater than the good news, so he anticipated their rejection. He anticipated their rebellion. He knew beforehand that given the choice that they would choose slavery over freedom, but God didn't just anticipate it. Hear this. He actually used it. God used their rebellion to bring about the death of his son, and he used the death of his son to bring about the salvation from our rebellion. He used 
our hunger for bondage to bring about the only sure path to freedom. How awesome is the gospel. And this isn't only true historically, folks, but this is also true in our lives. I'll speak for myself here, but I could not get out of my own way when it came to slavery and freedom. And I was weary from the bondage I was living in and can still, even though I was weary from it, I continued to choose addiction and slavery and rebellion over freedom. And in God's grace, he finally humbled me He whacked me and brought me to my knees. And in the midst of slavery, I cried out to the God who hears, God, please take my slavery and give me freedom. And just like he used the rebellion of the first century to bring about the salvation of the human race, he used my rebellion to finally make me tired of living a life of slavery and make me cry out for freedom. And now I can actually thank God for my former slavery because it was the path that led me to the cross where I found freedom to begin with. And now I'm not enslaved to sin any longer, but I actually get a new master and I'm enslaved to righteousness according to Romans chapter 6. I'm free, folks. And it's not just my story. It's the story of many of us here that the road to salvation began to being stuck in a slavery that you could not reason your way out of. And the weariness of the slavery caused you to cry out to the Lord who gives freedom. And it's still true of us as Christians. The gospel is not just the front door for our relationship with Christ. It actually recalibrates us, and it causes us to look for something greater than bondage and to seek freedom. If you are here and you're a Christian, and you're stuck in bondage or slavery to sin, to unbiblical thinking, to living for the approval of man, or any of the number of things that people can become enslaved to, here this message of hope, it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus died for it not to have to be that way. Christ took possession of your bondage so that you might take possession of Christ's freedom. And Paul reminds them of David, whom they had put their hope in one time about a thousand years previous, and he quotes from the second psalm to show them that even David looked forward to somebody that was greater who would not just free them as a people, but free them from themselves, from the power and corruption of sins. And he looks forward to the incorruptible one because we cannot cure corruption by looking to that which is corruptible. Only the incorruptible one can save us from the power of corruption. So Paul ends his message, and I'll bring it home with this, by exhorting the people to stop at nothing until they found freedom in Christ and an encouragement to continue to walk in that freedom by his grace. Look at verses 38 through 43. It says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest it be said and the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, and be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe, even if one tells you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after meeting, the meeting in the synagogue broke up. Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, listen to these words, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Look again, and look again at verse 38. And by look, I mean don't look at my face. I mean look at verse 38. 
it says, everyone who believes in him is what? Everyone who believes in him is what? They're free. They're free. Everyone who believes in him is free. And he reminds them again in verse 39 that freedom can't be found anywhere else. He specifically says that freedom cannot be found by the law. You can't good yourself to freedom. In fact, if you're trying to good yourself to freedom, it's a sign that you're in even deeper bondage than you think that you are. There's only one way to freedom, and it passes directly through an old rugged cross. And if it doesn't pass through the old rugged cross, then what you found is bondage, and it is not freedom. So in the first sermon, on the first missionary journey ever, there's one message, and that's that you don't have to walk in slavery. Seek freedom. Seek freedom in the only way that you can find find it. Seek Christ and know the freedom that you were created for. And I love how he finishes verse 43. He says, don't just look at the gospel as the entryway to the point of freedom. Continue. Continue, Christian, to walk in freedom by his grace. It says that he urged them to walk in freedom by his grace. As your pastor and somebody who has prayed for you all week through this text, I urge you with the same urgency that Paul did. Seek freedom. Continue in his grace. You don't have to walk in slavery any longer. That's what the name Christian means. Amen? So. I have a couple of application questions for you guys to think through as we leave this place and prepare our hearts for communion. Have you embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ as the one true path to freedom in this life and for eternity? Notice I say for this life and for eternity. It's not just fire insurance, folks. It gives you freedom in this life, not just the next. Are you currently, as you sit here, walking in some sort of bondage and if you are, is there a reason why you feel the need to keep it to yourself rather than sharing it? You're only as sick as your secrets, folks. Number three, have you tried to blame bondage on circumstances rather than looking at your heart and asking Christ to come in and just take over and just rule and reside over your heart? Number four, have you tasted the freedom that's yours in the gospel of Jesus Christ? And are you currently walking in that freedom? And the final question, are you taking Paul's words to heart in verse 43 and continuing to walk in the grace that gave you that freedom to begin with? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the freedom that's ours through your death. Lord, you died that we might have life, and not just life, but life abundantly. Thank you for the abundant life that's ours in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.